He's like, oh, no, we can't have that. No. So they go and they open up the tomb to get Antigone out. But she's already dead because she's been there for too long. The end. Welcome to Greek tragedy. Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about creating and creativity and the roots of creative genius. I am one of your hosts, and today I am joined by a guest, not a co-host. Guest, you want to introduce yourself? I'm Kate Tempest Bradford. Hmm. <laughs> We're being silly today. We are being silly today. I just woke up. But that's okay. It's fine. That's all right. It's Everything is great. So the reason I'm interviewing Tempest today instead of um, having her co-host is because, as you may have heard in previous episodes, she recently went on a research trip to Egypt for um, for the, the novel she's working on. Well, actually, the series she's working on. Um, and so I wanted, I thought it would be fun, we thought it would be fun to kind of have me interview her. I don't know why I'm talking about you like you're not here Um, about it. I'm not Um, in the room. (laughs) So here we go. First of all, Tempest, uh, some of our listeners may not know that you're working on a series. So would you talk a little bit about what what you're writing and maybe why you're writing it? Sure. Um, So the novel I'm writing, and hopefully it will turn into a series, and there are already a few short stories in the world is set in ancient Egypt, um, but it is uh, steampunk. Now, I've been told by by publishing professionals that I'm not supposed to say steampunk anymore because steampunk is over, they say. They're like, no one reads steampunk. And I'm like, ah, oh, because it's such an easy shorthand to be like, steampunk in ancient Egypt. And everybody's like, oh, that's so cool. Um, so but to find other terms. So basically, there's some steam and there's it's some punk. punk. Mm. Somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, the the basic idea for the series or the world of the series is that, you know, it's ancient Egypt, but I'm portraying the ancient Egyptians as having um, a lot of, well, one particular steam-driven piece of technology, but it's it affects their whole society and it's very important in their culture. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes down because of fighting over access to this technology, trying to figure out um, the limits of the technology, things like that. So, yeah. And the first book I'm writing, um, it's set at a period in ancient Egyptian history that Egyptologists have labeled the intermediate period. So it's right before the New Kingdom. And the New Kingdom is like the the period of history where most of the pharaohs that people have heard of um, that that's where they come from. So like Ramses II and Tutankhamun and Nefertiti and Nefertiri and all the Nefers. There are lots of Nefers. Um, a lot of them are in the New Kingdom. And so, yeah, so basically my hope for this series is that it will start at like right before the New Kingdom and then go on through the first dynasty of the New Kingdom, the 18th dynasty. Okay, so this is veering into the whole, you know, 
the premise of the show originally was like, oh, we'll talk about where ideas come from. Um, and I mean, we kind of, we try to do that, but there's no answer. But like, Tempest, where did you get your ideas? Um, <laughs> and and why was why is this book important for you, this book slash series important for you to write? It's interesting because the the seed of this idea like goes all the way back to college, I guess you could say, um, because I've had like a very long and winding road getting to this point. Um, but it started because I was taking a playwriting class and I decided for that class to do a play that was based on Antigone. And I, there was a reason why we did that. I think it may have even been an assignment to like come up with a treatment for a play that was based on another play. And so I chose Antigone because I feel like I read Antigone 70,000 times in middle school and high school. Like it was just one of those plays that kept getting assigned to us. And I was like, why do they keep it? I've, we've read Antigone. I know the story. We didn't read Oedipus Rex as much as we read Antigone. Would you, because I've never, I don't think I've read Antigone. So what is, uh, oh, wow. what's the premise? <laughs> I, I had a very rural education, so. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, like, you're going to read some Greek play. And I have the suspicion that what it is is that different school districts, like, choose which play you're going to read over and over from the Greek canon. And so <laughs> in Ohio, it was Antigone for whatever <laughs> reason. the one that they <laughs> right. will read. You will know this one. Um, but so Antigone is um, the third play in a cycle of plays uh, called the Oedipus cycle. And it's, it's the last one. And it tells the story of um, Antigone, who is the daughter of Oedipus. So in the first uh, play, we have Oedipus, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King. And it's all about his fall from being like, we love this king to stab his eyes out. <laughs> oh man, poor Oedipus. All the Greeks. Right. But the basic thing with Oedipus was that when he was born, there was a prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother. And so his father did, he was like, cool, well, we'll just fix that by killing this child because that's what, I don't know. So then... Because it's the ancient Greeks. <laughs> right. He gave his son to a farmer. He's like, go drown this kid in a river. And the farmer's like, nah. And so the farmer just puts him next to the river. And then Oedipus is found by some other people. And they're like, oh, look at this boy child that we found here on the river. We'll just take care of him. And then he grows up. And then one day he's walking on a road and he comes across a dude who's walking on the road and the dude won't get out of his way or they have some kind of altercation and he kills the dude. And then he just continues on down the road. And then there's like, he meets a Sphinx and the Sphinx asks him some riddles and he solves the riddle. And because he solved the riddle of the Sphinx, he gets to be the king. And so he goes to the place where he gets to be the king of, and they're like, well, great, you're here. Our king, we don't know what happened to him. Like he was killed on the road by some guy, but here, have his wife. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to marry this man. None of this actually makes any sense, but moving on. <laughs> so, so then fast forward, you know, many years, Oedipus has been the king for a while. He's actually a really good king. Everybody likes him. Um, but like the, the seer in the town is like this. Okay. Like some things went down when you were King, none of this. Is okay. You maybe should just like take a step back. And Oedipus is like, no, no, no. 
Like, I want to, I don't, I want to know what's going on. Who killed the last king? Let's find that out. Cause we can't have people running around here killing kings. And da da da, over the course of the play, is discovered that Oedipus was the one who killed the king. And the king was actually his father. And the woman that he married and had two babies with is actually his mama. And <laughs> this is why I love basing things off of those Greek stuff. Greeks, man. <clears throat> and so then, like, his wife kills herself. Yocasta kills herself. Oh, no, he, they have four babies because they had two boys and two girls. So Yocasta kills herself. Oedipus stabs his eyes out and then goes a-wandering. And, uh, and, and Yocasta's brother takes over uh, Thebes. And so this is all very important later. I'm sorry. This seems like I'm <laughs> rambling and telling you like terrible stories. But like this is, this is how like things all come together in the world of like my mind. So... So that's Oedipus Rex. Um, and then I forget what the middle play is. Um, and there are actually a, a few plays that are based on the, the things that happen to Oedipus's story. Like there's the Oedipus trilogy. It was the one that was like all written by one playwright, but there are other plays in the Oedipus, uh, in, in Greek canon that also deal with like Oedipus stuff. But like essentially after Oedipus dies, his sons, um, once they grow up, they're going to be the kings, but they decide, and this makes no sense either, that they're going to switch off. Like one of them is going to be the king for a certain number of years, and then the other one's going to be a king for a certain number of years, and then they're going to come back to the first guy being the king. So the older brother is the king for a certain number of years, and then he's like, cool, I've been the king for these years. Now I'm going to go wandering for a little while. So little brother, you get to be king for this number of years. But then the little brother becomes king, and the uncle from the last story, the uncle comes in and he's like, you shouldn't let that, you shouldn't let your brother be the king because your brother's a jerk. You're much better at this. So when he comes back, you just tell him no. And so then the older brother comes back. He's like, hey, I'm ready to be the king again. The younger brother's like, no. And the older brother's like, yes, no, yes. That happens for a while. And then they decide to go to war. So the older brother goes around Greece and he finds all of the like, great heroes of Greece at the time. This took place after the time of Hercules. So Hercules was not one of the, one of the great heroes, but like a lot of different heroes that like the, the Greek people would have known like, Oh yes, that guy from that area and that guy too. Hmm, they all came. So they, they all rallied to the side of the brother. And then there's like a big fight and Thebes, the city of Thebes was supposed to have like seven gates. And so at each of the gates, there was like some hero fighting against another hero, one on one side and one on the other. And then at one gate, the two brothers are fighting each other and they both die. Like they kill each other. And this is a pretty devastating event for the city of Thebes. And so once again, the uncle takes over as king and he's like, well, because the younger brother was your actual king and he died defending the city, we're going to bury him. But the older brother, he was a traitor. And so we're going to leave him out in the fields to be eaten by carrion. And he doesn't get a proper burial. Now, Oedipus had two daughters as well, Ismene and Antigone. Ismene did nothing and was hiding under her bed the entire time. Nobody likes Ismene. Antigone uh, is badass. So Antigone's like, what? This is stupid. I'm going to bury my brother. And so this is the plot of the play Antigone where like you sort of get a sort of last time on the Oedipus trilogy at the beginning of the story. And it's, and it tells like basically what happened. And then it says like, we're not burying the, the older brother. And Antigone's like, I'm going to bury my brother. So she goes out secretly in the night 
and she covers him with dirt and she says the prayers over him and she does all the things she's supposed to do to give him the proper burial. And so um, the king, Creon, uh, his soldiers come and report that somebody keeps like doing these things, but they don't know who it is. And he's like, well, you uncover him. You take that dirt off of him. He needs to stay out and be eaten by the crows. And then you go and you watch and you find out who it is. And so they set up and they watch and Antigone comes and they catch her. And they bring her back, and then Creon has a problem because Antigone is the princess. Like, you, you can't just go, like, beheading princesses just because they did some stuff. But he says, you got to stop doing that. And she's like, no, I won't. You can't make me. And they have a fight. So then he decides that she's actually, yeah, she's going to have to go. And so he punishes her by, I think, putting her in a tomb while she's still alive. Ooh. <laughs> I think that... I think that that's what goes on. Um, and so then uh, the seer guy who was in the first, his, he's Tiresias, and he's like sort of famous seer in uh, Greek stories. And Tiresias comes and he's like, this is not a good look for you, Creon. You can't be just putting princesses in tombs. And also what you're doing with this whole not burying the other brother thing is wrong and the gods are going to come for you. And so somehow Creon becomes convinced that the gods are going to come for him and that it's not okay what he did. Like the fates, I think it was, that was a threat. Like the fates would come because he was doing wrong. <clears throat> so he's like, Oh no, we can't have that. No. So they go and they open up the tomb to get Antigone out, but she's already dead because she's been there for too long. The end. Welcome to Greek tragedy. So, <laughs> um, so yes, I, uh, so I read Antigone many times. Um, I knew the story, the basic story of Oedipus, the whole thing with, with his life, because that's another thing that it's like, it's, it's sort of like a thing that they teach you in general um, when you're studying Greek stuff or whatever. Um, so it came time to do the adaptation of this play. And I was like, okay, well, since I know Antigone really well, I feel like I could adapt it. But then I started thinking about like, okay, well, where else could I set this play? Like what other things can I sort of like impose on this to, you know, do something different with Antigone? Um, And what I came up with was ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt, in part because I was like, yeah, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in terms of Greek culture that Antigone would be so focused on burying her brother. Um, And, and I was like, why is it that she cares more about him than Ismene does? Because as I said, nobody, like Ismene just hides under the bed, right? So I was like, well, what if, you know, if it's set in ancient Egypt, then that would mean that like she would be an Egyptian princess, her a brother would be an Egyptian prince, and then they would probably be married. And I was like, yeah, that's it. They were married. That's why she cares so much more. And her sister was married to the other guy. And that's why she doesn't give a flip because she's like, whatever, my husband's in the ground. It doesn't matter. So I I was like, okay, we're going to set this in Egypt. And, and that, the other thing was, is that, okay, so the Oedipus cycle takes place in the Greek city of Thebes, right? The capital of ancient Egypt, I, I mean, it moved around, but the capital that was in lower Egypt, no, sorry, upper Egypt, that the South is upper Egypt. The capital in upper Egypt was called Thebes by the Greeks. Mm-hmm. It wasn't called Thebes by the actual ancient Egyptians, but the Greeks called it Thebes. And so that seems significant to me that like the Oedipus cycle takes place in Thebes in Greece. And so I put mine in Thebes in ancient Egypt. And so, yeah, it was like about 
Antigone. I forget what I actually named that character in the end. I gave her an Egyptian name, but essentially Antigone, she's trying to make sure that her brother gets to the afterlife. I also mixed in some like Isis and Osiris myth into it about how like Curion or the uncle um, chopped up the body and sent it to different places, sent the pieces to different places to keep her from being able to bury it. And she had to go find them. Um, and I, I put in like just a bunch of different elements um, that I, that I was like, this came out of my head. So my teacher read the play. He really loved it. And he said, so you must have read Oedipus and Akhenaten. And I was like, what? And he's like, Oedipus and Akhenaten, it's this great book. And so it turns out this is a book by a man named Emmanuel Velikovsky. Velikovsky was a very interesting man of the early 20th century. Um, he wrote a lot of books about like trying to sort of understand what was going on in ancient times. And his books... Like, okay, you know, Ancient Aliens on, <laughs> mm-hmm. what is it? The History, History Channel. Very historical Ancient Aliens, yes. Right. You have all these people who are like, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. <laughs> They're like, the pyramids built by aliens. There's pyramids all over the the earth. It's built by, by aliens. And then like this thing over here, you see this? Aliens. And you know this story about this emperor over here? Aliens. You know, okay, fine. It's entertaining. Like, I won't, I won't lie and say I'm not entertained by ancient aliens. And I don't sometimes get ideas um, for <laughs> fiction, for fiction. So, uh-huh. so Emmanuel Velikovsky was the ancient aliens guy of his time. And he wasn't, I, and he didn't talk about aliens per se, but what it was is that he had a lot of um, different ideas about science um and and history and geology and all this stuff that did not accord with the scientific understanding at the time it was very 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 out there even for the time like you read it now and you're like so so mars crashed into jupiter and and the song that it made uh, created the earth i mean that's i don't think that that's actually what he said but like there's a whole book called worlds and collision that talks about like how we got all the planets in our solar system and it has something to do with like planets crashing into each other and songs and whatever so so may velikovsky has written a, he wrote a lot of books and even at the time his views were like very controversial and it sort of seems like every other book that he wrote was like really interesting and based in like very firm scientific stuff and others of it was like based not quite in firm scientific stuff. He was a visionary though. So all props to Emmanuel Velikovsky. But so Oedipus and Akhenaten is one of the books where it's, there's more stuff in it that you're like, yes, that seems like that could be right. Um, it's, and so the thesis of the book is that Akhenaten, who was a, uh, Pharaoh in Egypt, he's student Common's father. um, at the time that Velikovsky wrote this book, we didn't know a lot about Akhenaten. Not a lot had been discovered about him because he was like, once he died or once he left Egypt, like a lot of his stuff was like torn apart and hidden and destroyed. And so for a long time, and he wasn't included on the King's list. For, so for a long time, Egyptologists didn't even know that Akhenaten existed. And this is actually one of the reasons why Tutankhamun's tomb was found intact because People didn't know it was there. Mm-hmm. Like the ancient Egyptians did not record that Tutankhamun existed. And so if anybody was going to look for his tomb to rob it, they didn't know that there was a tomb to rob, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So Akhenaten, 
um, yeah, there wasn't a lot known about him and his story. But Velikovsky like read what was available and he was like, this sounds like some Oedipus stuff. And so his thesis was that you could, that the story of Oedipus, which is not a myth, it is a story, um, is actually based on what happened to Akhenaten and that you can make sense of some of the things that don't make sense in the Oedipus story by looking at Akhenaten in ancient Egypt and you can fill in some of the blanks about what happened to Akhenaten if you look at the story of Oedipus. And so that book was very formative because I read through it and I was like, what the heck? Because some of the stuff that I thought came out of my head only was in this book. Like I had um, done a thing where I had the uncle Creon in the uh, in the Greek version. He's called Creon. Um, he is there. There's a ancient Egyptian counterpart to him. That dude's name is I A Y I, and he was Pharaoh for a brief time right after Akhenaten, and he was the brother of Nefertiti, who was Akhenaten's queen. And so he fits like he's the brother of the queen. And so he's Creon. And so in my play, before I read Oedipus Nognaton, I had this whole thing where he was trying to get Antigone and then Ismene to marry him so that he had legitimacy for being the pharaoh. Um, because you can't just, you know, be the pharaoh in ancient Egypt. You have to have legitimacy from the women. Mm -hmm. It's matriarchy. So... I had this whole thing where he was like trying to force Antigone to marry him. And then he tries to force Ismay to marry him. Um, and then I read in Velikovsky's book that there is documented evidence that the wife of Tutankhamun, like after he died, she wrote a letter. She wrote several letters apparently to other Kings in the general area saying, send me your sons, like send me a son so that I can marry him because um, my uncle is trying to marry me and this is, and this is not okay. And it's not because he was her uncle. She didn't trust him. Like, I'm pretty sure that I was instrumental in like actually murdering Tutankhamun. But anyway, so she's like, I'm not marrying this dude. Um, send me a prince to marry. And this is highly unusual because you don't, you don't find that, um, ancient Egyptian Kings, uh, and Queens allowed their daughters to marry foreign kings or foreign princes or whatever because the the line of succession ran through the women so you, they're not marrying off their daughters mm -hmm. like you know other places do that are full of patriarchy so for her to request a a prince from someone else was very very unusual but it like sort of speaks to the desperation that she had like of all the stuff that was going down because basically like my husband's been murdered i'm 12 years old <laughs> things are happening yeah. i help so, so, yeah, but, like, I, I just thought that came out of my head. But I was like, oh, that's real. That's a real thing that happened. And so there were a bunch of sort of correlations like that. So over time, I decided to turn, instead of doing a play, I decided to do the whole Oedipus cycle as a novel. Because as much as I sort of enjoyed playwriting, I wasn't as into it as prose writing. Mm -hmm. So, um so I decided to do the whole thing as a novel and it was going to be a novel about Akhenaten. And I was just going to use the structure of the Oedipus cycle to write a novel about Akhenaten. And so I started researching and I found all these books, but uh, I think I've talked about this before, how my education was uh, not 
as great as the price of my education would have made you believe. <laughs> um, because NYU it was, I mean, I don't know, maybe is, but was not that great at school. Um, and so nobody had ever taught me how to research. So I ran up against a lot of things where I was just like, I have no idea how to find this information that I'm looking for because I didn't know how to research. Like I didn't know how to go about it. But um, of the research that I did do, the books that I did find, because there were a lot of books about Akhenaten. There are a lot of, so many of them. Because, you know, people are, well, people who are interested in Egypt often get like really intensely interested in Akhenaten because of the mysteries surrounding him. Um, Because like I said, you know, a lot of his stuff was destroyed. Um, He had a whole city, like he he made a whole capital city um, called Akhenaten. And he moved the seat of power from uh, Thebes. And I forget the name, the actual Egyptian name of the city of Thebes. Um, But he moved the seat of power from Thebes to Akhetaten. Um, They built up that city fairly quickly. And then within something like 17, 18 years, it was gone because when he died or disappeared or whatever happened to him, and it's still not clear what happened to him, um, the people like he, he pissed off a lot of people. And so they came and they, they, they just like dismantled his city. So like, unlike most other uh, places in Egypt where if you go digging deep enough, you'll basically find like the foundations of temples or you'll find like, you know, some walls, some columns, um, you know, whatever of temples of houses or whatever, not in Akhetaten. If you go to that archaeological site today, which I did on my trip, um, which we'll eventually get to. <laughs> um, if you go to the archaeological site today, it's literally just foundations. There's nothing left standing. Like they literally tore this place apart. And so there's a lot of mystery surrounding like, why did Akhenaten do the things he did? What happened to him when he left? What happened right after he died? And so there are a lot of books written about Akhenaten. And so I read a lot of them um, read a lot of the research, found a lot of research online, and it started to sort of formulate the story. But it became clear to me after probably a year or two of like trying to make this work that I just didn't have the skills to really do this kind of epic novel. Um, I'd only written a couple of short stories at that time. Like I said, I was in college mm-hmm. and um you know, I'd written this play, I'd done a lot of research, and I just felt like I wasn't ready. So I decided to put that novel aside and just concentrate on writing short stories, which I did. Um, And yet, and come back to it when I felt like I had the chops. So fast forward a lot of years, we're not going to talk about how many years, (laughs) a lot of years. (laughs) Two or three. But I never, right, I never really stopped um, researching stuff about ancient Egypt. I just wasn't doing it in a methodical manner, but like, you know, I read things and and I started poking around and looking at stuff. And I wrote a couple of things that were like um, either set in ancient Egypt or um, like had ancient Egypt as the base for the culture. Um, one of them is my story, um, Until Forgiveness Comes, which actually just, you know, everybody talks about it on September 11th. So I always get a chance to just sort of revisit that story every 9-11. Um, and... And yeah, I just sort of like kept Egypt like sort of like in the midpoint of my mind uh, as time went by. Then I was invited to an anthology, a steampunk anthology, and the editor specifically requested steampunk from places other than Victorian England and, you know, and America. And so I was like, I can write 
a story that's set in ancient Egypt that's steampunk. Like that seems like it would be cool. And I came up with the concept. I came up with like the steampunk thing, uh, the the machine. And I set about trying to write the story. And you know, I I had been trying. I'd been in the middle of writing novels for a little while at that point, and I had forgotten how to write a short story. I had forgotten how to plot a short story. So the plot that I came up with for this story, I was like, yeah, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, and then this, and this will happen, and da-da-da, and then it'll be the end. And I was writing and writing and writing, and finally I got to what I felt was like the middle point of the story. No, the begin, the end of the beginning of the story. <laughs> and I was like, how many words do I have? I have 8,000 words. Oh, no. What's my word count limit for the story? 5,000. Um, um, <laughs> problem. And I tried really valiantly to make that short story into a short story. It was never a short story, as I recognize now. So... I finally had to say to that editor, I'm really sorry. I could not produce a short story for you. Sorry. Um, but then I was like, okay, so this isn't a short story. It's a novella. Or, um, so let me write it as a novella. So I did that. And I finished the novella. It was about 45,000 words. I gave it to my writing group and they were like, Tempest, Tempest, this is not a novella. This is a novel. <laughs> you tried to... St- you tried to shove a novel into a novella. Oh, Stop no. that and write a novel. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, you can't make me. No. There was foot stomping. There was screaming. I threw some, some, some up against the wall. I don't know. But eventually I gave into the fact that, yes, this was a novel. And somewhere in the middle of writing the novella, when I was um, thinking about like what other stories I could do in this world. Like since I spent, I spent a lot of time like coming up with the world, right. And doing more research um, so that I could get details of the world. Correct. Because as much as it's, you know, it's steampunk, but I wanted to put as much like real ancient Egyptian stuff in it as possible. So I could be real clear about like, what is the stuff that I made up and what is the stuff that like is actually based on the actual culture. And in the middle of that and thinking about what other stories I could tell, I was like, wait a minute. I could, I think I could write the Akhenaten novel now. Like, and it would fit in this steampunk framework. Like, there's very little that I would have to change about the, the story if I, if I didn't want to, because I can just like this, this framework for the world, like fits right in, in with this story the kind of story that I want to tell and the kind of story that I want to tell about Akhenaten has changed a little bit over the years, but, but it's still like the core of it was still there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, so now that's what I'm doing. Like once I get done with this novel, I was going to jump right to the Akhenaten novel, but then a novel about Hatshepsut, uh, which is another Pharaoh in the 18th dynasty tackled me to the ground. It was like, no, write me first. So, <laughs> Um, but, but they all, I have like a plan for how they all sort of weave into each other. So they're all going to be standalone novels. You won't have to have read any of the other novels in order to read each one of them. But the, the sort of theme that I'm working through it works if you read all three, they're an arc. So that's where that came from. So you talked about how your, um, your education, your college education didn't really prepare you to do the research that you needed to do in order to do the story justice. So how did you, how have your research skills evolved 
and did the trip to Egypt and also um, the couple of trips you've taken to San Jose. And I'll let you talk about why San Jose is important. Um, But were those trips because your research led you there or like, how did, how did that all fit in? Like where, where did that decision come from or the decisions to make these trips come from? Yeah. Um, the, the San Jose thing was because, um, at some point in my research, uh, I want to say this was about 10 years ago. I met a woman named, uh, Teresa Crater. I met her at WizCon. She's another, uh, fantasy writer. I think she just writes fantasy and she's married to a man named Stephen Mailer and Stephen Mailer wrote books about Egypt. And I was like, Whoo, I need to know about these books. And so I looked them up and actually Stephen Mailer writes a lot of books, um, that are about, uh, alternative Egyptology. We'll, we'll call it that. Uh, and because of reading Stephen's books, I sort of became again interested in looking at ancient Egypt from outside of the box of traditional academic understandings of ancient Egypt. Um, because I had started to become really frustrated with some of the things that I was reading. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, so when I read Stephen's book, I was like, these things that he's saying and the people that he's talking about, this makes a lot more sense. Um, and in one of his books, he talked about uh, the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum in San Jose, California. And there was pictures of it. And he said, you know, everything in the park, because the museum is like part of Rosicrucian Park and it's a whole city block in San Jose that's owned by the Rosicrucians. And they have lots of buildings on it. And he was talking about the architecture of the buildings in the park and how they were based on ancient Egyptian architecture and um, and just all this lovely stuff. So I was like, hey... I need to like take myself to San Jose and see this. And then I get there and it's beautiful. Like, it's just amazing and stunning. Like if you ever have a chance to go to Rosicrucian Park in San Jose, the whole park is, is just amazing. Um, the buildings are really cool. And then the museum, it's a small museum, but it's very potent. Um, and it has a lot of great stuff in it. It has a lot of really cool artifacts. Um, they also have a library that is attached to the museum. And, um, because I was like, I would really love to just go into this library and just spend some time reading their books on ancient Egypt. And the Rosicrucians are very, um, 18th dynasty focused. And I was like, okay, so this works out because this is like my area of study. Like I'll be able to find lots of good stuff about 18th dynasty Egypt in this museum. So last year I went to, I spent about a month, uh, at the museum or at the library, just going through their books. Um, So with the whole research thing, as I said, like, I was never really taught how to do it. I learned a little bit how to do it better um, in in the intervening years. But actually, I feel like my research skills took a much bigger leap (laughs) when I was at the Rosicrucian library because it's a small library. It's like lots of books. Like it's not nothing. Um, But because it's a small library, I was able to better understand how how libraries catalog books and that helped me to then figure out ways that I could like look for information in spots that I wasn't looking for it. Cause like the major thing with me up until this point had been that like libraries confuse me <laughs> because I'm like, okay, I'm looking for books on ancient Egypt. And they're like, okay, like here are all the ancient Egyptian, like 
sections and subsections and whatever. I'm like, cool. But then like, I can't just go to one spot in the library and find all the books about ancient Egypt, right? Because some of them are over here and some of them are way over on the other side and some of them are on a different floor. And you're just like, why are they all over the place? Why aren't they in one place? Like a bookstore. I spent so much time in bookstores trying to treat bookstores <laughs> like libraries. Like, I want to be in this section and read this thing. Um, <laughs> and, and while bookstores are, are lovely in that way, um, they're not libraries. So, sorry, bookstores. Uh, but, so yeah, so because I sort of felt like everything was all over the place and I couldn't browse, right? Like, I, I didn't feel like... Just because I found one book that I was looking for in this one section didn't mean that any of the books in this section would be things that I was looking for. And that very that frustrated me. Mm-hmm. But in the Rosicrucian library, um, I was able to browse because it was such a small library. And then I was able to start making the connections between like why this book is over here, but that book is way over there and that other book is way over there. And it was much more fruitful sort of pulling books off of the shelves that were nearby the books that I was looking for um, to see if they would be books that might contain information that I wanted. And then after I had gone through, like I had a list of books when I got there that I knew I wanted to see if they had. Um, And then going through their card catalog, which they have like a literal paper card catalog because nothing is digitized yet. This is a small museum and they have a small staff. So I was like, man, it's been a long time, so I've actually literally had to flip through these cards. It's amazing. Um, going through their card catalog, uh, looking for stuff based on um, category, uh, subject. And then um, and then just like, okay, so it's like, here's the section that has stuff on astronomy. Let me just see if there's any books in here that have the word Egypt in the title. And I found several books that were talking about ancient astronomy, Um that was very useful. Uh, I went through the books on architecture and found several books on ancient Egyptian architecture. Also awesome. Um, and so being in there, like, sort of helped me to understand how libraries are organized and how to browse a library and how to spend time just sort of, like, taking in the books on the shelf and, like, figuring out which ones probably I can pull out and find some information in instead of just being, so, like, so laser-targeted on the stuff that I was looking for. So, yeah, so spending time in that library actually was the most beneficial research experience in terms of, like, figuring out how to find the information that I was looking for. Um, but then, you know, there's, like, there's different types of research. So the research that I was doing in the books was all about getting information and data. You know, I wanted to make sure that, like, I had it right. Like, what kind of food did the Egyptians eat? Like, what did their houses look like? What did their clothes look like? Tell me about, like... What what did this pharaoh do? What did that pharaoh do? What was going on with the religion, et cetera, et cetera? Like, these are things that, that you can read in books. But the thing that I couldn't get from the books and the reason why I felt like I had to go to Egypt is getting the sense of what it's like to actually be there. And, you know, we talked about this in the podcast before about like mm-hmm. how I had to stand next to pyramids. And so in terms of that, my research trip was everything that I wanted it to be. You know, when I got there, I was able to experience standing in spaces that the ancient Egyptians had created, spaces that I'd only ever read about and seen pictures of, and the pictures never did anything justice. Like the number of times when I looked at a thing and I was like, the picture does not do this justice. (laughs) Um, It was like in the thousands, I'm sure. Um, And, but also just like, 
getting information that wouldn't necessarily be imparted in a book because the author wouldn't necessarily think that you needed to know that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, like our... And I was very lucky because the tour uh, that I chose, I chose a package tour because I've never been to Egypt and I, I wanted to be safe and I wanted, you know, somebody who was very experienced to be like, this is what we're doing. Here's our agenda. And the package store that I chose, they were going to all the places that I wanted to go anyway. And specifically they were going to, um, Akhetaten, which, um, now in modern times, they call it Tel El Amarna. So they'll go, uh, so sometimes that period of history is called the Amarna period because that's the name of the the place now, Amarna. Um, but as I said, um, there's nothing really to see in Amarna that's impressive because like everything was torn down. So like you can see the outline of the foundation of the temple and the outline of the foundation of Nefertiti's palace and, you know, stuff like that. Um, the, there are some really amazing tombs that are up in the mountains right there. Um, and we got to go into a couple of the tombs, but in terms of like tourist value, it doesn't have a lot of tourist value. It has value though for like archaeologists and researchers. And I got very lucky because not only was the person who put together the tour, um, she's someone who's connected to Stephen Mailer. Her name is Patricia Aoyan. And, um, and she, she's very knowledgeable. She's, uh, been living in Egypt for, I think something like eight years, um, has been giving tours there. She's really knowledgeable about all the stuff that I wanted to know and understand. But she also, we also had a tour guide, um, an official tour guide whose name is Mohammed Fahami. And he is, uh, an Egyptologist as well as a tour guide. As a matter of fact, like while we were on our tour, he got his master's in Egyptology. He like passed his exams. And so, uh, Mohammed was amazing because he, was able to basically like tell tell me things that I didn't even know I needed to know and then of course like he answered all of my questions like he was really great and I said I'm going to be emailing you like literally every day with questions he's like that's fine <laughs> so he's very <laughs> sweet um and and yeah like and that was really what I needed like I did I do have some friends who are Egyptologists um and and other people that I can like email questions to but it was an it was a very different thing to be standing in a place and then say to Muhammad, but what about this? And he's like, oh yes, this, that, here's some knowledge and here I'm going to point to this thing right here. And, and just like being in the place and being able to have access to somebody who had, you know, that level of knowledge, like that was so key. And that was like sort of the, the thing that I really needed at that time, other than also getting the sort of experiential sense stuff from being in a place so that I was able to describe it and describe it accurately. So, so yeah, so that's why, you know, I, I've, I always say that like, yes, there's lots of different forms of research and you should employ all of them if you can. And I was just, you know, so fortunate to have been able to go to Egypt and and get all the stuff that I got, um, because it, it, made some changes in how I'm going to be doing things in the future with the books. Not as much this particular book. Um, and, and there are like lots of different reasons behind it, but the main reason behind it is that like with this book, I'm talking about an ancient Egypt that is under occupation by foreign powers. So things aren't going to be exactly correct in their culture anyway, because they're under occupation, but going forward, um, it's going to be Egyptians in Egypt. And so um, there are a lot of things that 
have changed about what I'm going to portray and what I'm going to do with the culture going forward. Um, I mean, the, but the big thing that did change with this book is that there was a whole scene where I have um, my characters coming up from the Nile, going to the area where the, uh, the Great Pyramid is, uh, the Giza Plateau, going to that area and going around the Sphinx and then going somewhere else. And the way I had written that was based on me being on Google Maps or Google Earth and being like, I think I could do this. And then when I actually got there, I was like, this, that scene is wrong. <laughs> Everything about it is wrong. It's all and so, wrong. Um, so I rewrote that scene, uh, redid the blocking so that it was something that actually like made sense with the, with the terrain. And I was only able to do that because um, after, I mean, we went on the package tour, we went to the Giza Plateau, we actually went into the Great Pyramid, which is amazing. But um, I stayed on a few extra days. And a couple of days after that, I went back and instead of like taking, you know, the bus around or whatever, I walked f- all the way from the Great Pyramid to the smallest pyramid. So like the Great Pyramid is on one end of the of the, that complex and the smallest period is on the other pyramid is on the other. And so I walked the whole thing and I couldn't actually tell you how many kilometers or or miles it is, but like it was walkable. Um, it didn't take us very long to do it. Um, and, and yeah, so I was able to like get a real sense of like, you know, the distance between things and like where the roads are and, and like how it would look coming from this one direction. I took a lot of pictures. Like I took so many pictures, like as I went from like this, you know, standing here, I'm a walk like 10 feet over here. Now, what is it? What does it look like when I'm standing here? I did a lot of that. Um, but, but yeah, it was, you know, part of it was like the experience, but also, you know, getting access to different knowledge, like always good to get access to different knowledge. Um, I, of all the Egyptologists that I already knew, I didn't know any Egyptologists who were actually Egyptian. And so that ended up being like very, very important. So accuracy aside, how do you think your novels will be different or better for going on this trip? Um, I mean, in part, I think that I'll be able to bring... I don't know. I think that there's just a difference between reading a book by somebody who's never been to a place trying to describe a place and reading a book by somebody who has been to a place describing it. Um, There's that. And then hopefully I'll be able to sort of synthesize a lot of the different information that I have about ancient Egypt better, having, you know, having had these experiences um, it just like changes in perspective because a lot of the stuff around ancient Egypt, when you read, you know, research books or whatever, the thing that was not clear to me, especially when I was in college um, and even like in some of the intervening years, I didn't realize how much misogyny was embedded in research about ancient Egypt and um, how much patriarchal nonsense there was, and also how much bias toward uh, Christianity was embedded in that. And um, Mm -hmm. once I started understanding that that was the case, it made made me change, like, 
which people's books I was reading. Um, because I was like, well, I'm not going to read this patriarchal nonsense. That's silly. Um, but it also changed then how I viewed the, the raw data that I was seeing. Um, for instance, you'll hear, if you dabble at all in any kind of spirituality, mysticism, etc., that ties itself to ancient Egypt, you're going to hear a lot about Toth, the god Toth. Um, who is um, in some strains tied to Hermes uh, from, is Hermes Greek? I can't remember. Yeah, Hermes is the Greek name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the Greek. Messenger that's the Greek of the name gods. For Hermes. So, yep. and there's like, there's all this mystical stuff that's tied to Hermes and alchemy and just things. Um, so, so yeah, so you hear a lot about Toth and they're like, yes, Toth, he was the God that, you know, brought us writing and knowledge and all this stuff. And, and he has, you know, all the Pythagoras was hanging out with the, with the priests of Toth and sacred geometry. It's all Toth, 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 Toth. Like, okay, fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I went to Egypt, one of the things that, I mean, I kind of knew I would see this, but I wasn't prepared for how often I saw it. Um, because Toth also, there is a, there's a goddess who is his companion, Sachet. And Sachet actually is the one who like literally invented writing. Um, and so, and like Sachet is involved in a lot of stuff. And so when I went to Egypt and I'm in the temples and you see Toth and almost everywhere you see Toth, you see Sachet. They're together. But you don't hear Sachet talked about in this Golden Dawn mystical, you know, Hermes Trigamestis, whatever stuff. You only hear about Toth. But almost everywhere you see Toth, you see Sachet. The only times I didn't see Sachet when I saw Toth was in scenes from the underworld. Because Toth is there and, you know, the weighing of the heart ceremony, he's recording stuff and whatever. And I asked about that. And I, Muhammad said that that's because Sachet is, Sachet isn't of, she doesn't tend to cross the boundaries. Like Sachet is of the world of the living. Uh, Toth can be in the world of living in the world, the afterworld. Um, and it isn't that she can't go, but like that she just tends not to be there. She tends to be in the world of the living. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And I'm kind of interested in like why that would be. And that's one of the things that I may research in the future is like, like, why is it that Sachet doesn't tend to, like, show up in the afterworld? But it doesn't make her any less important than Toth, right? But she would never know that from, mm-hmm. like, reading any of the stuff about Toth and, oh, how he's so special, whatever. And that's just, that's, that's just bias. Um, that's just patriarchal nonsense. Um, and, and I think it was really understanding that that helped sort of steer me in the direction of the research that I'm doing now. Um, I mean, I was just recently like reading some of my older stuff. I was looking for some old story that I had written. I was like going through my files and, and reading things that I had written where I was like, well, you know, clearly the Pharaoh did this because he's Pharaoh and he's a man and he can. And I was like, wow, I'm really glad I didn't like try to publish that Akhenaten book or even like really write it totally when I did, because I didn't understand how ancient Egyptian culture worked. You know, I thought it was patriarchal. It's not. Um, but that was the impression that I was given by 
reading research books on it. So yeah, like, you know, there, obviously there are changes over time in our understanding of things like, you know, Egyptology that was going on in the 1930s is definitely going to have a different flavor and viewpoint and understanding than Egyptology that goes on in the 2018s or whatever. But recognizing that there is a strong, strong, strong scheme of bias uh, and not just bias against women, like bias against like sexuality. There, There is actual evidence that the ancient Egyptians were totally cool with things beyond heterosexuality, but you do not see that in any of the academic literature published like before the past maybe 10 years. I think there's there's a there's a book or a paper. I don't know, there's like a small amount of literature now. And that's only because there has been a change in culture that allows mm-hmm. researchers to even talk about that. But otherwise they just didn't. And so if you were not a person who was like literally in Egypt doing, you know, academic things and being at digs and and whatever, you didn't know that that was even a thing. So, so yeah, it's, it's like the, over time I've begun to understand like that there, there are a lot of forces at play other than just, you know, what they tell you. There's a lot of stuff that, that you just aren't told. And so then you have to go ask. Like I've had conversations now with some of my other Egyptologist friends about these things. They're like, oh yeah, there was totally this and this and this. I read about like this and some unpublished blah, blah, blah. Or I talked to this one professor and they told me because they were at the dig where they discovered this, whatever. And so I'm able to get the knowledge that way, but mm, it's hard. Yeah. Well, um, I guess... My last question, because we're getting close to an hour, is like, if someone is thinking about embarking upon a research trip, um, maybe not necessarily <laughs> because Egypt, but like if they're they're looking to travel so that they can more accurate accurately describe, you know, places and situations and cultures. Um, what's your recommendation? Well, I think the first thing is, um, to have some definite ideas about what you want to know and see before you go. Uh, but also be open to just like, you know, seeing some things or or going to some places that you wouldn't necessarily think are connected. Um, and, you know, as I said with me, I went on a package tour because I've never been to Egypt and I wanted to be safe and I wanted to be with people who understood everything um, so that, you know, they would be able to to shuffle me through places. Um, and, and luckily, as I said, the, the package tour that I went on was not sort of an, uh, like, we're going to be here for five seconds. Take a picture. Take a picture in front of the Sphinx. Okay, we're going. Goodbye. Um, we actually spent time in places. So that was important for me to know going in. Um so, so yeah, like knowing what you need to do and see, but also being open to things that you may not think are related. Um, also good, like finding that good local person to be able to, to help you plan your trip um, and to see the things that you want to see. Um, you know, with me, I knew that I wanted to go to Egypt 
um, with a bunch of other people who are into alternative Egyptology <laughs> um, because that's that's my jam. I understand that culture um, and I wanted to, I, I, I was really hope, open to um, the kinds of things that alternative Egyptologists want to, you know, interpret about what's going on in, in Egypt and stuff. Um, so I was with my people <laughs> uh, there. And so, yeah, it's good to like be with your people because then um, you're going to be able to, to ask the questions and like have things come up that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of, but the people who are there can be like, yes, I, I, I have thought of that. And, and here's the thing. And you have all these great conversations. Um, if you have to go alone, that's also fine because like there, there are ways that you can like make sure that you plan your trip so that you get the time that you need in each space. And that's the big thing, like having the time that you need in each space that you go to. So you don't feel rushed. You don't want to join any kind of, um, tour group where they're just going to shuffle you from place to place and not actually let you experience a place. So sometimes going it on your own is better because then you could take the time that you want to take, um, and, and just do that thing, but always have a plan, I guess is the, is the biggest thing. Like always make sure that you have a plan so that, um, you know, you know what you're going to do, but you leave spaces to make sure that you can like experience. Um, I mean, those are the biggest things. And sometimes the other thing is like, don't get too caught up in thinking that you have to do some sort of trip that like is the major trip to end all trips and you'll never need to go back again or, or whatever, because number one, that's not always possible. <laughs> it's sort of impossible. And sometimes you don't necessarily have the money for a big trip. I mean, as I said, I was very, very fortunate mm-hmm. to be able to get the money together to go to Egypt. And that was because I did crowdfunding. Um, and you know, if I had, if I hadn't taken this particular package tour, I might've even be, been able to go um, for less money but it was very important for me to be able to go on this tour. So don't, but don't think that you have to like spend a whole bunch of money or be there for like some huge amount of time. Like sometimes what it takes is like, you know, less than a week, less than, you know, $2,000, even less than a thousand dollars, a couple hundred dollars, maybe depending on where you want to go and what you want to do. Um, but don't just, don't feel like, if you don't have the budget to do like everything that going and doing something isn't going to be valuable uh, because it is, I mean, I've, I've gotten inspiration um, for stuff from my ancient Egypt book from a lot of different sources that I wouldn't have necessarily thought would be useful to me in that regard, but then they were. Um, so even just going out and having time to explore stuff is important, I think. Um, and and yeah, but the other thing, like not necessarily for research trips, but just for research in general, like having experts who are willing to answer your questions um, is huge, is huge. I mean, yeah. as I said, I had some Egyptologist friends before I went on this trip and now I have another Egyptologist friend and, and other sort of fellow travelers that I can ask questions of and I love it. And it, it's, it's so valuable, just so valuable. Like the number of times that I have, talk to Mohammed about things and ask him questions. I'm sure that at some point he's going to get tired of it maybe, but he gets to read the book. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And then, 
discovering like there were a lot of things that I just discovered that I I didn't expect to discover uh when I got there so just being open to that um yeah I mean just knowing that there's there's a lot of stuff that I still just don't know like even within the field like the the pockets that I am researching there's so much stuff that I don't know um but I'm really 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 enjoying this journey of like trying to figure it all out. And that's also like really important thing, just enjoying that journey. So. I also love that. Um, w- one of the things that you're, you're talking about and emphasizing is that writing, um, even when you're writing something like writing doesn't have to be a solitary pursuit. Um, there are always, even if you're writing something contemporary, there are, you know, people you can talk to and you can ask questions and get feedback and um, explore perspectives outside of yourself and that kind of thing. And I don't know, I feel like we're still in an era where we think of like the person just like banging on a keyboard, not a typewriter anymore, maybe, but like banging on a keyboard and they've written the great American novel or whatever um, all by themselves. But that's not how good books are written. It's not a solitary pursuit. No, it's not. I mean, it definitely can feel that way, but yes, it's it is possible to like be be in a crowd and writing a book and not in such a way that you're like, "Oh, I worry about what the crowd has to say." But no, like I have a lot of really good beta readers. I have a lot of people that I can talk through story problems with, and I have a lot of people who I can ask questions about ancient Egyptian history as relates to what I'm trying to do in my novel. Um and and have those conversations. So, so yeah, like in that way, I'm, I'm already sort of sharing my book with these people, um, which is nice because then it it doesn't feel like it's, it's always just me. And then of course there are the people on my Patreon who get to read the very sporadic chapters that I write. (laughs) So that was going to be my, my final, I think question uh, was like, how can people support you? Like you can, listeners you can become a relay fm member and support originality but um and that money comes to tempest and me and we split it equally but if you want to um help tempest specifically um be able to write this novel tempest what do people need to do uh you can go to my patreon it's patreon.com slash k tempest bradford um and basically on there like i I give folks you know, free fiction. I also do um, some videos where I review books. Um, and and yeah, so and at the $10 level, you get the chapters as I write them. I used to promise that I would give everybody a chapter a week. That was a very ambitious. <laughs> it was very ambitious. Very ambitious uh, goal. And I don't, I'm not writing that fast at this time. So I recently changed it to once a month, you'll get something. Um, but basically, yeah, I'm trying to like share this this book with people as I write it. Um, and uh, people at the other levels, like at the $5 level, you get the DVD extras, which is like background scenes, uh, because I find it very useful to like, to write the scenes of things that happened in my character's lives before this book happened or before the, the events of the novel so that I can better understand the character. So I write those scenes anyway. So I give them to um, some of my patrons um, so they can see the sausage, I guess, as it's made. Uh, and I'm doing a thing at the end of the year. Cause last year I started um, my, my crowdfunding for Egypt in November. And one of the things that, happened was I had a lot of people who know me and who wanted to support me 
give to the crowdfunding campaign who had never actually been on my Patreon. And that's because they were like, eh, I'm not, I don't like Patreon or I don't want to give you like money once a month. I just want to give you a lump sum. Here's a lump sum. And I was like, cool, I'll take your lump sum. Thank you very much. You're the best. Um, And so I've decided that at the end of the year, I'm going to offer the ability for people, if they don't want to support me monthly on Patreon, to like support me in a lump sum for a year. And then depending on the amount of money that they give me for a year, they get the same stuff as my Patreon people get. Oh, nice. Uh, so, so yeah. So that'll be another way um, that you can support me. And basically, if like if you want to see this book or like aspects of this book as I write it, as I run towards the end of it, because I'm very close. It's got to get done. Uh, very close. Um, then, then yeah, that's, that's one way you can do that and, and just sort of support me as I write and support like my running around doing podcasts and yelling at people on Twitter. Someone is wrong on the internet. Um, so is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't um, ask you about and you didn't bring up or? I think the the only thing is, is that um, I put off going to Egypt for a lot of years. Like I've been wanting to go for over a decade and I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. Um, I actually, it's it's been over 20 years now because I have a cousin who used to go to Egypt on a fairly regular basis, but he stopped going after 9-11. And I was never able to convince him after that point to to take me. Uh, and one of the reasons why I kept putting it off is because things just seemed to be like very unstable a lot of the times. You know, like, I mean, with 9-11, that didn't have anything to do with Egypt, but it just seemed like traveling to the... And and right now, Egypt, Egypt is considered the Middle East. So traveling to the Middle East as an American didn't seem like a great idea. Um, and then I think right before the Arab Spring and right before the revolution in Egypt, I was like, maybe I should go. And I was like, whoop, not doing that. Mm-hmm. And there are even people who, as I was planning for this trip to go this year, 2018, who were like, oh, I don't know. Should you go? I mean, it just seems so dangerous. And I'm like, whatever. Um, I'd been listening to a lot of uh, people who did tours in Egypt, um, Egyptologists who went to Egypt on a regular basis for, for digs and stuff saying it's safe to go to Egypt. It really is safe here. And a lot of the narrative around how it's not safe does not even actually come from people who are in Egypt or connected to Egypt. Right. So when I got there, I was like, Oh, I worried a lot about nothing. Um, and that, that seems to be the theme. Like even when the revolution was occurring or right after the revolution, it was totally safe for tourists to go to Egypt. There weren't many of them there. They're still recovering from like the number of tourists who were just like, whoop, not going, but it was totally safe to be there. So if you are considering going on a research trip to somewhere that other people consider to be maybe dangerous or whatever, I would just say, um, don't listen to people who actually who don't actually have any ties to that place as to whether or not it's safe to go. Don't listen to people who are just like, oh, but I heard on CNN that no, no, don't and don't listen to CNN. Um, just in general, for, right? Like, find people who um, who go there on a regular basis, who live there, uh, who can tell you. And and quite honestly, like if you're going there and you're you know doing stuff, um, touristy stuff. 
in general, you're a lot safer anyway. I mean, in Egypt, the big thing, like, yes, there have been incidents where, you know, people have been killed in at tourist areas and whatnot. Um, but those incidents are not any more than people who have been killed in tourist areas in America or anywhere else in the world, right? Um, but, you know, because Egypt so depends on tourist money that tourist sites are very, very, very protected. There is security, a presence, unnervingly so in some cases, in all those areas because they want to make sure that tourism remains safe. And I'm sure that that is very true almost anywhere else you're going to go, like as a tourist. Um, So just don't be, don't be put off by that if you want to go and research somewhere. Um, And the other thing is, is that I, I would say that you should always be a very respectful tourist wherever you go. Um, Americans don't have the greatest reputation (laughs) in other places, but Americans got money and that's, that's sometimes uh, most of what people care about. But when you go to other places, um, just try to immerse yourself as much as possible for you to do so in the culture, you know, and, and learn a little bit about how that culture works and try not to like just stomp all over everything with your big Western boots. (laughs) Um, It's, it's not always possible. Like you can't like completely submerge yourself in a culture that you're visiting for the first time. Um, That that's not necessarily possible, but there are ways to go about it being respectful tourists as opposed to a non-respectful tourist. So that's, that is the only other advice I would give. And also Egypt is a beautiful place and I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going back. It was an amazing, amazing trip. (laughs) I spent two hours in the Great Pyramid just singing. It was great. That's awesome. I'm so glad you got to go. Like I've been excited since May when you left. So, all right. Well, that is it for this episode um we are uh getting to the end of our monthly episodes and we'll start bi-monthly here soon so yay um so tempest if people are looking for you on the internet where can they find you you can find me at my website ktempestbradford.com on twitter at tiny tempest uh, on Facebook, the Facebook group Tempest in a Teapot. I think if you just search Tempest in a Teapot, you'll find it. Um, I don't actually hang out anywhere else, really, on the internet. I mean, except in dark corners. That's dark fair. Dark corners of the internet. So, yes. But if you want to find me, those are the big places to do so. And uh, you can just find me on Twitter. I'm at Aline, A-L-E-E-N. And I link to, like, all the other things from there. Um I guess until next time, plan a research trip. Yay.